Welcome to Chit Chat Money. My name is Ryan Henderson, and I am joined by my co-host, Brett Schaefer, as always. Today, we have our Thursday deep dive episode, where we interview an analyst or an investor to discuss a single stock or industry in this case. I guess it was kind of a mix of both. And today we had on the show, Devin Lassar, um, who I guess you could call him kind of a generalist um, and with a little bit of a focus in, in tobacco. He is very thorough, has a very good understanding of the tobacco industry at large. And so we discuss kind of all the dynamics going on there, but also dig into Altria specifically, which I guess is a fun discussion. Did you have any highlights from it? I really enjoyed the discussion of how the volume declines actually impact the bottom line, where there's not, it's not just volume declines, users smoke less cigarettes, and profits go down in a linear fashion. There's a lot more factors that actually go into play. So he he lays it out greatly. Okay. But before we get to the interview, we want to talk about our presenting sponsor, sponsor which is Stratosphere. Stratosphere is our investing home screen for fundamental research. We, I think I speak for both of us when I say we use it every single day. It has tons of great data visualizations. It's got SEC file aggregation for all your companies. It's got press release aggregation, which is a bit of a new feature as well, which I think is just perfect if you're trying to build a watch list or a thorough watch list, not just one that you kind of briefly look at every once in a while, but something you truly track. Um, So go ahead. Ditch Yahoo Finance, start investing with stratosphere.io or start expanding your investing knowledge with stratosphere.io. And if you're looking for a paid plan, which gives you unlimited custom-built KPI visualizations, go ahead and use our code CCM. You get 15% off any paid plans. Even if you're an individual investor, I recommend at least checking out the pricing because with the 15% discount, it could certainly be worth it for you. Uh, we found a lot of value out of the full paid plan. But anyway, if you're more interested in the platform, stick around after the episode. We've got a little three-minute interview with the founder of Stratosphere, Braden Dennis. I guess without further ado, here's our interview with Devin Lassar. Welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. All right. Welcome in. Today, we are joined by now second time guests. Devin Lassar. He is the author of the Invariant Substack. So we're going to link to it. Feel free to check it out. It'll be in the show notes. Everyone everyone knows where to find that. Um, but Devin, welcome back to the show. We've got tons of questions about basically the state of the nicotine market. But I guess before we get into that, how are you? How have things been? Life is good. I have zero complaints. And uh, yeah, I think things seem crazy in finance right now, but I'm kind of, you know, as always, tuning out the noise, sticking to what I know, and and just kind of you know writing it out, seeing seeing where things lead. I guess it, this is kind of a top down overview, and it's not a very specific question. But if you wanted to encapsulate the current state of the nicotine market in the U.S., how would you, how would you describe it? 
overall, uh, hated uh, to, to many, maybe confusing. <laughs> and, 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 you know, both of those things are just fine by me. And one, I think the one thing people focus on, and we're going to, for any listeners, we are going to look at this through the lens of Altria and then also some of their competitors that are potentially coming within the US market as well. But the big thing that people are going to immediately think about, and we either want to get basically this sort of topic out of the way or hit it first, is cigarette usage has declined consistently in the United States since 1965. Mm -hmm. I would add that Altria and its preceding companies have been the top performing stock during that time period. Uh, is there any reason you see for this rate of decline to change? And what I mean by that is kind of the second derivative, you know, either flatline mm -hmm. and get better for someone like Altria or cigarette companies in the United States or accelerate and get worse. Right. So it has changed already. I mean, you, you, you can look at the long-term trend and say, if we just look at, say the period of maybe 2016 to 21, uh, like volumes decreased by about 3.6 per year, right? And that's been kind of lockstep with, with where we see the, the smoking rate decline, which is also, as our uh, buddy Lawrence Hamtel pointed out more recently, you know, part of that is a function of the denominator effect and just a growing population and younger people smoking less. Um, but with that, you know, in 21, we saw industry volumes down 6.5 last year, down an adjusted, you know, 8%, which is pretty staggering relative to, to the historical norm. Um, I don't think that 8% is a new normal, just like if we go back and we look at 2020 when volumes were about flat, I don't think that was terribly normal either, right? So I think we'll probably experience some degree of mean reversion. Uh, but with that said, I, I think it's completely reasonable to think it's still elevated compared to that, maybe 3.6%. So maybe we're talking about a mid single digit decline rate in, in cigarettes. Um, in terms of, you know, does that change on the longer term? Uh, I think definitely. No idea when that happens. We know it's accelerated. And, and maybe a small part of that is also these new categories, right? Pull it, pulling volumes away from cigarette volumes. But if we look at some other markets that have lower smoking rates than the U.S., it seems to be that, you know, you, you hit a lower level and it kind of tapers off, kind of like the bottom of a ski slope. So maybe it starts to ease, and, and maybe at some point, you know, it becomes apparent that you know at some point you're going to have a certain base of a population that just continues to want to use a certain product. Where is the U.S. and kind of the global grand scheme of things in terms of like? cigarette volumes are, are they because uh, i i hear all the time friends that like visit europe or something like that and they're like everyone smokes sure. over there no one smokes over here that kind of thing um and i know brett mentioned that a lot a lot more people smoke where where he's at currently mm -hmm. is u.s kind of further along in their transition to other forms of nicotine i mean that de definitely um so we are, as a country, we, we have a rate 
uh, of smoking prevalence amongst adults of caught between like 12, 12 and a half percent, something like that. Um, but if you break it down on a state level, you see some states that have single digit rates, some that have over 20% rates, right? Um, and, and, you know, that, that's something that's interesting to focus on, but also there's considerations um, like affordability, which is absolutely critical, right? You have all these different uh, levels of income across the world and, and the U.S. has a very high level of uh, income, disposable income that can be deployed to, to purchasing these types of products and all kinds of different uh, cultures, social reasons, uh, education levels, all kinds of these different factors that kind of uh, you're going to weigh into mathing out where you where you think that trend goes. But um, yeah, I, I think the U.S. has has a much longer runway ahead than than maybe the broad market is is pricing in right now. Okay, we're going to talk a little bit about Altria specifically, and you, you recently had uh, a write-up primarily focused on them. So I recommend anyone that's interested in this conversation, interested in Altria, go check it out. Um, but let's start with their sort of um, crown jewel, I guess you could call it. Not not jewel literally, like not J-U-U-L, but you know, jewel. Um, Marlboro, they are the leading uh, market share uh, cigarette maker in the U.S. Do you see any reason that that changes over the next five to 10 years? Right. So I don't see that their position changes. I think that the share can and certainly will change. Um, Marlboro's share in the U.S. market has been over 40% for over two decades. It's fluctuated. Past couple of years, I think it's been between like 42, 43%. Um, and more recently, you've seen this, this highlighted fact that with, with disposable income under pressure, some consumers are, are down trading to, to discount brands. Um, I don't find that terribly concerning because while that's occurring, uh, if you look at the premium cigarette subsegment, my borough is continuing to, to take share in that recently. And if you look at what management has, has highlighted, uh, they very much want to continue to focus on it being a premium product. They don't want to chase low margin total share when, when they can just have a, a higher share of the premium sub subsegment and, and you know maintain maintain that level. No, yeah, that totally makes sense. I think the big concern with this company is one. Well, the big concern people have, and I'm sure the bulls do not uh, have this concern, is the cigarette volume declines, as we talked about. It's been declining since 1965. But I think the number one maybe concern lately has been management. I think the first question here, and I'll, maybe I'll combine it with this other one. Can management get out of its own way? And after the terrible disaster with Jewel, can you trust them with capital allocation decisions anymore? Or does it not matter? I, I wish I could say it doesn't matter, but it it always matters, right? Like, uh, you know, I, I wrote last year, I think some line that go, goes along the way of, you know, any management can destroy a, a business if they dream big enough and, you know, commit to a few half-baked ideas, right? <laughs> like, at the end of the day, nothing is indestructible. Uh, with that said, the, the core business of Ultra is rather remarkable. As you pointed out, you know, for the last half century, volumes declining and 
their operating profit from those operations. Basically nothing but up and to the right at a pretty remarkable clip, right? And so looking at capital allocation, uh, yeah, I, I think there's some red flags and it doesn't matter how much value you produce if you turn around and incinerate that value, right? And uh, no denying that that Jewel was value destructive. I think if we look at that, there are all kinds of things that just didn't make sense. One is obviously the valuation. Um, two, uh, something that was problematic was the fact it was for a 35% stake where Altria didn't have full control. And they were also in this awkward position where if they have Jewel succeed, it maybe eats into their product, you know, Marlboro, where they own 100% of that. So it's this really odd conflict of interest. And when they came in, there was no uh, hiding the fact that Jewel was all kinds of issue regarding their marketing, their positioning. Uh, they, they had all these lawsuits on every different level. And Altria really did help them clean up their act. They, they cut a ton of the marketing. They proactively pulled all their fruity flavors off, off the market and really made sure that this company was going to start to operate a lot more responsibly. And when that happened, you also see Jules' market share just totally start to tank. And when it became apparent that maybe things weren't going to turn around for them regarding all the legal issues, Jewel had started to distance itself, started providing less support to the company beyond you know, legal capabilities. and. Um, Along with that came all the write downs. And so, you know, with that fresh in the mind of everybody, when they read about these new deals, totally fair to, to, to point to that and say, you know, can we really trust management? Um, for me, I, I, I think that while that is one of the best, you know, examples of incinerating capital, if you look historically, I don't think management has been absolutely atrocious in terms of capital allocation decisions and how they run the business. Again, they've, they've managed the core business exceptionally well in light of all, all the secular and non-secular dynamics that affect uh, you know, cigarettes, cigars, or oral tobacco. Um, if you go a little bit further back, you can see other deals, like when they acquired John Middleton, UST, when they, when they acquired uh, Burger Stone around the same year they acquired Kronos, uh, like all of these things made a lot of sense for the business and arguably put it in a much better position overall. And now when you look at both the more recently announced joint venture with Japan Tobacco and Enjoy, um, you know, I, I think that there's reason reasons you can criticize or be concerned about both of them, but there's also very good reasons of, of why uh, I don't think either of them should be you know, flagged as Jewel 2.0. Uh, so which one would you guys like to start with? Back them up. Let's do, let's do Enjoy first. That seems simple compared to maybe a strange partnership. Uh, what did they acquire? What, and what do you think about it? Right. So uh, ha haven't officially acquired it yet. So still pending. You know, we're probably, you know, half a year out or something. They still have to go uh, through what, HRS, FTC, go through all the the legal hoops and whatnot. Um, 
the purchase price is 2.75 billion uh, with a potential extra like $500 million earnout with some contingencies. Uh, we'll get into those. Uh, and really Enjoy is a company that, you know, according to available information did 150 million in sales last year. So you're looking at a price tag of 18 times sales, which sounds absolutely insane, right? If you just focus on that number. But if you dig into it a little bit more, you know, it's maybe unfair to judge it just on that number where we don't really understand the price mix of, of how those sales are being derived. Like Enjoy really sells three things. They have a disposable vape, the Enjoy Daily. They have a pod-based system called the Enjoy Ace. And then they have Ace Pods for that device. And we really don't know the full breakdown of sales, though you know I do have some data suggesting that maybe they did around 115 million in pod sales last year. Uh, but we don't know what levels of you know, promotional, uh, maybe aggressive discounting was occurring that's gonna affect that. We don't really know the unit economics, you know, what does it cost to produce all these? How are they selling? How are they marketing? We don't have a good idea of their exact geographic footprint, which matters because while there's not a, you know, a federal level excise tax on, on the, these products, there, there are on different state levels, right? Which is gonna affect the retail price, which is gonna affect your contribution margin, you know, so on and so forth. Um, what we do know is that Enjoy, their, their pod market share is only about 3% in the US, which is extremely low when you look at, you know, both Juul and Views Alto. Now, they're only in about 30,000 stores, and they've been very conservative with their rollout, with their marketing. They, they've made sure to kind of grow this business as responsibly as possible. Now, Altria, you know, their, their footprint is, you know, getting into maybe 200,000 stores. And along with that, substantially improving the visibility of these products and, and raising consumer awareness. I don't know if you guys have checked out any stores around you, but around me, very few stores carry any of these products. And if they carry them, they're on the bottom shelf out of view with no signage. Nobody knows about these things. Even like you walk up to the clerk and ask them about Enjoy, they'll have like forgotten about it. It's like, oh yeah, I guess we do sell that. It just sits on the bottom there and nobody comes in because they don't know it exists, right? So if you, you know, rough math, if you think you could maybe expand the footprint by, you know, times five, times six, improve uh, visibility, maybe you uh, even more aggressively discount the device or maybe you know you do a device discount attached with this the sale of of pods to spur uh trial and adoption you know maybe maybe Altria could acquire this and then rapidly grow it to take share um you know that's that's one of the things that i i suppose makes sense about the deal and, and the other part that kind of makes sense is that unlike jewel uh Enjoy is the, the only pod-based vaping device in the U.S. that has uh, an authorization through the PMTA process, right? Uh, Views Alto is pending. Juul is fighting the marketing denial order. 
from their PMT application for their related devices. You know, Enjoy already has a green light with these products. And um, we've seen, seen this, this growing uh, number of, of disposables and illicit vapes in the US market because the, the FDA really isn't he as heavily enforcing as maybe they should. But we've seen some signals and some reports and some reasons to believe that maybe they'll start to really enforce against a big chunk of the market. If that chunk of the market goes away, here's Enjoy authorized products that can maybe swoop in and take that share. I think that also kind of makes a lot of sense. So you look at the whole thing, big picture, wide range of potential outcomes, but certainly looks a lot different than Juul in, in terms of, of why they're doing this. And like worst case scenario is, you know, it's, it's a much smaller deal than the size of Juul. And if, if it ends up being a zero, which I certainly, you know, if it goes through, I hope it is not. But if it's a zero, you're getting rid of the only competitive, like competing product that has authorization through the PMTA process that isn't already owned by Big Tobacco. Like you're, you're basically, you know, in, insulating the, the rest of big tobacco from, from whatever threat this may or may not represent in the future. Now, is that worth the price tag? No, I, I think you could maybe argue long-term it is. I, yeah, I think I, you could certainly make the case because they've got the distribution footprint and the resources to potentially create a, a leader out of a, out of a smaller player, but okay. Anecdotally uh, among sort of, my peer group there's no brand loyalty in vaping like it's it's what uh, maybe they just pick up the local whatever the disposable is at the local gas station do you see any reason that that would change so so i mean that is the toughest thing for the e-vapor e category right now especially when you're when you're trying to you know compare it to legacy brands where they've been entrenched they have this tremendous brand equity brand loyalty where people stick stick to the brands that they know and love and you know part of that comes down to the aggressive promotions where you know you go in and you see your product isn't being currently discounted but you see a competing product is you know 80 percent off at the moment well maybe maybe like you say hey screw it. you know i do like what i was using but 80 percent off is 80 percent off i'm gonna you know go over here for a little while. Um, and, you know, if, if you look at all the products in the market right now, there isn't a lot of product differentiation, which I think might be, you know, a, a standout positive for Enjoy, at least for their pod-based system ACE, which is if, if you look at Juul's pod-based system and you look at the Views Alto, they're incredibly similar in design and very similar to others uh, that are on the market as well. And, and they, you know, they're easy to use, but kind of like cheap and they don't feel like a quality product. Whereas if you hold the Enjoy Ace, you know, it, it's not heavy, but it's a little bit more substantial. The materials it's made out of are just distinctly higher quality. And, you know, all these products also are complex enough that they, aren't 100% consistent in the user experience. And so 
you know, if, if Altria could maybe refine the production of, of the ACE, make sure it's as consistent as possible, it feels high quality, you know, may, maybe that's, you know, the start of an equation that can lead to building some, you know, uh, long-term brand equity for them. Um, but it's certainly a challenge for, for that sub-segment. Yeah, I mean, the vaping market is so speculative. It'll be interesting to see whether that subsector will rationalize over the long term. Mm-hmm. Now, let's have the partnership with Japanese or Japan Tobacco. What is this? I actually haven't, as someone who loosely follows Altria, this is the one part I haven't followed closely. It seems like a strange announcement, but maybe for the <laughs> listeners, um, what, are the, yeah. what are they doing here? I don't know. No, um, it, it's it is a little weird, um, and there there's reasons on paper where it makes sense, but you can also like step back. And I think the more I've thought about it, the more I've kind of actually questioned this deal. So 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 basically, it, it it's meant to be basically a perpetual agreement where these two companies are working together uh, regarding heated tobacco products. And this joint venture is specifically a focus to get JT's uh, heated tobacco product plume into the U.S. market, right? They have this new version um, that is, you know, new, but in in certain markets like Japan is actually starting to take incremental share and starting to perform decently well. Um, But needs help breaking into the US market. Ultra, again, has this massive, massive uh, network relationship with wholesalers, uh, you know, re- retail chains, un- unparalleled sales and distribution uh, network infrastructure in, in the US. And so this agreement is basically, you know, JT will provide the device, Altria is going to produce the heat sticks that are used for the device. And then we'll also be responsible for leveraging its infrastructure to spread it in the US. And the economic interest in the, the joint venture is 75% Altria, 25% JT. Um, you know, that all sounds fine on paper, kind of. But again, you you're like you can step back and, and see some clear issues. Like one is you have this non 100% interest in this joint venture that could maybe cannibalize volumes of your legacy business that you 100% own, right? Which is maybe not a great thing for Altria. And and two, something that I'm even more concerned about is the the consumables for for this product would be produced using the the Marlboro brand, which in my view, you know, that's inc- it's the strongest asset that Ultra has is is this brand, and you need to safeguard that and protect it, you know, above everything else. Attaching it to a device that you aren't actually manufacturing yourself and in 100% control of is a risk, right? And I haven't really seen anybody question that, um, but I think it maybe should be questioned, um, you know. That notwithstanding, you know, on paper you can math it out where this deal kind of makes sense. It's very, very small capital layout for Altria, like 150 million up front. They have they they have existing infrastructure where they can already produce the heat sticks. So so no no real capital intensity and and 
you know, if if they think that heated tobacco, you know, is is gonna break into the U.S. market and start taking incremental share, you know, maybe maybe this you know makes sense in part of their overall equation. No, it totally makes sense. Great overview. Last thing outside of the core Altria business, what was the dispute they had with Philip Morris International? I guess for context for any listeners that don't know how these two companies relate, they used to be the same company. Uh, 2009, they split up. Altria has Philip Morris USA, and that is only the US market. Philip Morris International has, as the name suggests, the international market. Although now within these risk-reduced products, there's a little bit of a competitive overlap that we're going to maybe talk about in the next section. And they had this dispute. Has it been resolved? What, what was the outcome for Altria? Right. So, so I mean, my, mind you, you're, you're exactly right. They, they, at one point, were one company. Uh, we're doing all kinds of R&D on potential new products. When they split up, they basically, like, they, they each attained everything they had been working on. But then PMI started sinking a lot more resources into heated tobacco, right? They came up with their product, ICOS. And since they are outside of the U.S. and wanted to introduce this product in the U.S., they had this agreement with Altria, where Altria would handle sales and distribution and, and get a nice pretty cut for, for doing so. Again, similar to JT, it's like, yeah, but if this cuts into your cigarette volumes and you don't actually own 100% of this, like, is this really the best move for Altria? Um, but again, you can math it out and see how maybe maybe this made a whole lot of sense for, for both of them. Um, with that said, the, the test markets and the rollout was really slow initially. Um, initial versions of ICOS are authorized th through the PMTA process. But then a couple of years ago, um, the ITC issued an injunction against PMI for, for ICOS, saying that the device infringed on a few patents held by Reynolds and said, you, you know, you can no longer import this device to sell because of this infringement, which left PMI with a couple of choices. They could go through the whole PMTA process with a new version that isn't reliant on those infringing patents and eventually get that into the US market. Or they could produce ICOS in the US, which, you know, if you're producing it in the US, you don't have to import it. You can kind of skirt around, uh, you know, uh, the injunction around importation. Now, PMI, they bought Swedish Match, which I know you guys weren't, weren't super happy with. You guys were Swedish Match shareholders. Um, but now PMI has their own distribution and sales infrastructure in the US. They can, in theory, produce at least the ICOS 3 in the US and, and, and sell that, uh, working on getting the new ICOS Aluma through the PMTA process, which will still take time, um, though that's a far superior product by, by all measures, uh, looking at just user, user experience and user satisfaction. Um, but with, it, with their own existing infrastructure, they said, you know, we don't really want to have this agreement in place with Altria, it makes more sense for us to do it on our own, have 100% control over everything, 100% economic interest. And, you know, the initial agreement was going to run through 2024. And with, with a potential like option to re-up it to 2029. And PMI basically handed Altria a big bag of cash 
saying, uh, let's just cut it at the end of 2024. Here's 2.7 billion. That's both, you know, part ways. And so, you know, looking at it, I think it makes sense for, for both of them. You know, at the time, Ultra is really not able to fulfill its end of the deal anyways. 2.7 billion in cash is a lot of cash. Just so happens to be almost exactly the same amount of what they're paying for Enjoy, right? And now PMI gets 100% economic interest and control over, you know, trying to reintroduce ICOs into the United States. So, you know, I think it makes sense for both of them. But I guess something you touched on in your article that I think was an interesting point is around macro concerns. Um, I've always thought of Altria as kind of a, uh, or maybe cigarettes in general as a pretty resilient category, regardless of kind of the macro uh, situation. But this year, it seems to have have had a bit of an impact. So, I guess, how do you think inflation? impacts Altria and actually I'll just leave it there. How, how do they, how are they impacted by it? Yeah. I mean, it depends is my like really bad and vague answer, but you know, uh, inflation means a lot of different things. There's all kinds of different types of inflation and they can all occur to varying degrees. And so, you know, for example, if you were to talk about wage inflation, concerning demographics that maybe smoke more, that's probably a really good thing for Altria, right? Those groups of people suddenly have more income to spend on products, probably a net benefit. However, like, you know, if you have broad inflation outpacing wage inflation of that specific demographic, that's clearly bad. If you have input cost inflation for the goods that Altria uh, produces, certainly a negative headwind. Right, so there's all these different types of inflation that can push and pull uh, on the outcome, but you know, at, at the core of it, you have these products that are extremely cheap to produce, outrageously high margin. You have inelastic, you know, uh, demand. You know, people just want to buy these products almost regardless of where we are in the economic cycle. Um, you're going to see some extreme resiliency occur. Now, more recently, you know, you compare, uh, you know, all those dynamics to also seeing like spike in gas prices and pressure on disposable income. Well, you know, that has a more pronounced effect. But even so, um, you know, Ultra at least ha ha has, you know, navigated exceedingly well, you know, all things considered. And, and most certainly compared to a lot of other industries. Um, has handled it much better. All right. That's a great overview on Altria. We're going to come back to the valuation on Altria after we hit reduce risk products, which leads to my next question. And this is the one I think a lot of investors are interested in, is the state of the nicotine pouch market, or maybe broader, maybe it's not just nicotine pouches, it could be oral, uh, non-tobacco products. Can the success of these products on the West Coast of the United States be replicated across the country? And what companies would be impacted by these developments? Right. Um, that, that is the multi-billion dollar question, right? <laughs> I mean, and, and certainly like one of the big question marks that, that maybe leads some people to steer away from the space. Um, if, you, if you look 
at industry volumes in the U.S. broadly. In, in 2017, you had oral and e-vapor make up about 17% of volumes. Last year, that, that was 26%. So incrementally taking total, total industry share in volumes, right? If you, if you look specifically in the oral tobacco segment, now, Altria is the, the clear leader in terms of total share. You, you have MST and SNUS, which is like 40% share. Then you have ON, which is just under 6%. So let's call it 46% total. Now you have PMI that acquired Swedish Match. You have Zin, which is just under 15% share total oral. And then you have General SNUS, which is you know high single digit share. <laughs> then way at the bottom, there's uh, British American Tobacco's Velo, which in terms of oral tobacco, like 1% share. And also their volumes declined last year. Like the, the U.S. version of Velo is just an inferior product and is struggling on all fronts. Um, but what's interesting, if you look at the subsegment of oral, you look in, into the modern oral subsegment, it actually grew rapidly last year from about 15.5% of the oral category to almost 22% in a single year. And along with that, both Zin and An just grew rapidly. Uh, Zin's volumes were like up 70% year over year. Um, for the modern oral segment, um, Zin's share has come down a little bit, but it's still at like 67% in the US. Uh, Ons is around 23%, Velo around five. And, and then you have like Rogue and some other small pouches that make up the rest, but like they're basically non-contributors. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think if, if you look at the, the rollout, like as you mentioned, West Coast and, and, you know, going onward, you know, Zin basically exploded on the scene. And as they started to scale, just gained in popularity. Then Altria, through uh, aggressive promotional discounting, tried to take share on, which has been succeeding so far. But you look at these two companies' total volumes, and you look at kind of how management is guiding. For both these companies, who uh, they're generally conservative in how they talk about volumes broadly, they're they're kind of letting you know that this isn't slowing down like this trend it's going to keep sweeping through and, and you know it wouldn't surprise me to see modern oral continue to take incremental share of total oral um it, until you know it just flips and, and it basically continues to cannibalize volumes um with that you know i i think that's pretty exciting for these companies while at the same time you like you contrast that to vaping which again remains a little uncertain regarding volume growth and not just volumes but really just like retail value and profitability where you have these guys doing basically alternating between steep steep promotional discounting to try to take share you have all this looming kind of regulation a lot of illicit uh vapes, non-authorized vapes, um, from foreign producers especially that are continuing to take share. Elf bars are 
oh huge right now. Balloons, they're, right? <laughs> they're colorful and people like the flavors. That's right. And, uh, and yeah. And the thing is, is we can see some recent enforcement actions done that might signal that the FDA is going to get more serious about trying to clean up the illicit market. But they can't do it by themselves. They need to work with a whole host of other governmental bodies. And especially when you're trying to enforce um, against all these different types of producers, it's much easier to, to enforce against domestic manufacturers rather than these foreign manufacturers. And so, you know, it's, it, it's not easy it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to happen fast, even if they try to make it happen fast. And so, you know, there, there's a lot of uh, different outcomes that can occur with the vaping space. You know, you pair that on top of the the issue with like lack of brand equity and brand loyalty. Um, you know, I, I think that the pouch segment looks much more favorable compared to vaping, especially another big reason is like you look at uh, youth usage incidents, it's almost non-existent for, for these modern oral pouches. Um, and it's come down considerably, considerably in the past couple of years for vaping, which, which is excellent. Um, but, but you know, pouches don't have that overhang or that stigma. Stigma has never really been an issue for, for them. There's, we've hit on a lot of the questions uh, in, in some way. And so I'm going to try to consolidate uh, a couple of the ones we have. You, you mentioned the market share statistics of modern oral um, and how there's, it seems like, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, there's pretty good brand loyalty in, in that market, especially relative to vaping. I'm just going to give you a general question here. What do you think of Philip Morris's acquisition of Swedish Match? Um, who do you think, I don't want to say, I guess, who do you think wins in that? And is there any way that Zinn kind of loses its share? Right. Um, so a couple of things to touch on there. Like, I think it makes total sense from the perspective of PMI. Um, the modern oral segment represents a gigantic opportunity that they were really behind on. If you recall, they were trying to work with Shiro their own brand that like nobody heard of, knew of, and they had these test markets and just like, it kind of went nowhere. And they suddenly had this opportunity to use attractively priced debt to acquire the, the, the leader, right? Leader in the US and pretty dominant in, in, in Europe. And if you look at the, the terms of the deal, um, what I think it was like 17 times trailing operating income, something like that. I don't know, uh, off the top of my head. Um, but you math it out, you, you look at the growth trajectory, the um, the tremendous operating leverage that they're, they're, they're able, a, able to recognize as, as they scale up production. Um, and then long-term, you know, you're competing for share, but in theory, if you develop that, that brand loyalty, you know, you're able to exercise that pricing power down the line as well. So if you kind of scale pricing power, um, and then on top of it, PMI's global distribution, meaning you know maybe they accelerate getting Zin to all these other markets where it has no presence, 
And it would have taken Swedish match as a standalone, like way, way longer to, to, to try to do that. And by that time, maybe they would have lost share, right? So you see all these ways that it makes total sense. Um, on top of the fact, as we covered, like with the Swedish match sales and distribution infrastructure in the US, it sets PMI up for reintroducing ICOS in a much more favorable way. So, you know, I, I think it makes sense for PMI. Um, I know you guys had voiced some disappointment. You wanted <laughs> you wanted Swedish match to stay like that pure that pure play, right? That standalone play. So what, what are your thoughts on? It was a know, beautiful business. <laughs> yeah, it was wonderful. For, for, fair price. Uh, we'll, we'll see the next two, three years, but I think to be honest, for PMI, fair price was about 40 times operating income, given how much that operating income could balloon back up to, could double really within a few years time and get it back down to a much more reasonable Earnings multiple, but you know that's in the past, and maybe uh, uh, old Swedish match shareholders should just buy PMI. Uh, Ryan, anything else to add there? Well, I just uh, yeah, I mean, you look at it like they paid not that steep of a premium on on Swedish matches current earnings, but Devin just mentioned too, they get kind of that potential earnings unlock with their own distributions. So the forty times that 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 number quickly. The the E in that PE quickly comes down if if the distribution works out globally. Yep, yep. All right, wrapping up um, RRPs, which are, for any listeners, risk reduced products, these sort of things. And this is a bit of a speculative question, but how do you see the size of the RRP market in the United States three to five years from now? And maybe frame it in the lens of how it could help or hurt Altria, since we're trying to focus on that stock for this episode. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Super, super speculative. I wish I could see exactly up five years and, and, and pinpoint with precision, but nobody can. Um, I mean, something I've tried to distill down in my own thinking is like, wh what are these products actually competing against? And I don't know that it's one, you know, the RPs are competing against one or one another. It's more com competing against legacy products, right? You have these products that have tremendous brand loyalty, familiarity, that are simple and straightforward. They've been around forever. You know, everybody is, is very familiar with the idea of how you would use a cigarette, right? <laughs> um, and also, when, when you compare it to, to a product like Marlboro, which is a premium product that's hyper-consistent, you're also having a very high quality and consistent experience, you know, setting aside the obvious health risks. Um, but you're going to have that experience that's very consistent with every single cigarette in theory. You compare that to some of the newer products. Again, we get into this, maybe why there's some of that lacking, lack of brand loyalty in e-vapor. Each of these products have like different pain points, whether it's you know, not being able to use a device while it's charging or the pods leak a little bit, or, you know, it doesn't heat and produce a similar hit each time you use it. Um, that kind of inconsistency is a big detractor. At the same time, you also have um, complexity of certain products, like disposable vapes are very easy to use, like mindless to use. Pod-based are pretty intuitive. 
Then you have like open tank, which like the big guys don't really de really deal with. That's more of a you know niche space, but that's much more intimidating and, and seemingly complex. Um, but you have like added health benefits. They can be discounted or, or they can be priced cheaper than legacy products, but still be more profitable for the manufacturers, right? And there's some big advantages to these products too. Uh, for vaping, there's no smoke or lingering smell. It's discreet. You can take a hit, put it back in your pocket. Whereas like if you light a cigarette, you know, you want to stand outside and smoke the whole thing. Uh, you look at modern oral, even more discreet. Nobody can tell you. You pop one of these pouches into your mouth. You don't have to spit. There's no smell, stain, anything like that. Because of that, like that's also really popular amongst basically the, the whole adult population. Whereas like traditional MST, like dip is really like a male dominated product, right? 95% male use, users. And then there's like heated tobacco, which some people really question, you know, can heated tobacco make it in the US when vaping is so dominant? And, you know, I think it can simply for the, it, that it, can do well. The degree is, you know, uncertain, but it can do well simply because it offers maybe the the physical experience that's as close as you can get to smoking a cigarette without actually combusting the product, right? Without smoke, without ash. You have the these actual tobacco compressed sticks. You have the ritual, the physical ritual that's very similar, and and maybe that makes it a much more approachable product and something that ends up providing a much more satisfying user experience. Um, certainly that's been the, in the case in other markets. So, you know, I wouldn't count it out in the US. Um, re regarding trajectories, um, again, a lot of it comes down to how the FDA handles one, authorizing additional products, as well as taking enforcement ag actions against unauthorized products. That's going to really dictate the trajectory of, of RRPs. Then you see competitive dynamics, um, which is you know going to be led by who makes a better product, who can raise consumer awareness, who's going to spur trial and, and adoption by you know various you know pricing strategies. All these things lead to you know wide variety of outcomes. What I think is most likely, though, at least for the short and medium term is that these products are going to grow in volumes, but the, the vast majority of the profit pool is still going to stay with the legacy products where you're not doing this aggressive discounting. You're actually taking price every year. And while volumes are diminishing, you know, you, you, the, the aggregate profitability of operations kind of expands. Okay. One of our... One of the questions I think we got from a lot of uh, when we asked publicly on Twitter, when Brett asked, was about basically the big three. And so I'll try to lump that in with Altria's current valuation. I guess this is maybe a tough question, but between Philip Morris International, Altria, and British American Tobacco, which do you think will perform the best over the next five to 10 years? And why, I assume? Maybe you can lump Altria's valuation uh, question in there as well. Yeah, that, that's a it's a good question. Um, yeah, 
I'll, I'll, I'll do it in reverse. I'll start with Altria's valuation, which is like, you know, I'll, I'll walk you through just like basically how I think about the company, which first off is like, it's clearly old, boring, written off by most, hated, vilified, um, all things that to most maybe don't make for the most, you know, appealing of investment. And just so happens to be like exactly the kind of company I like. Um, and, you know, why do people write it off or, or hate it? It's like, well, there's obviously some either like moral ESG concerns, right? So there's a huge pool of investors, whether retail or institutions that just aren't going to touch this stuff anymore, aren't going to touch ultra, let alone the industry. And then there's a large group of people that look at the decline in smoking rate and look at the volume declines and look at new products. And they, they just kind of write off the whole thing and go, you know, the future isn't going to be as bright as the past and it doesn't make sense. And, you know, there's, there's better opportunities out there. And that's where I kind of dig in and I see something different, um, which is, you know, there's some common mistakes people make by, by focusing strictly on volume declines. And even, you know, citing uh, the fact that these companies in Ultra especially can take price up every single year, um, that really doesn't highlight the mechanics of what's going on, which is, you know, volumes go down. So your cost of goods sold associated with those volumes also happens to disappear. The excise taxes that you would have paid on those old volumes are no longer there, right? So your aggregate costs in that regard go down. Um, and so when you raise price, what's actually happening is you aren't just making up for that loss in volumes. You're creating this massive differential between price and these two major costs shrinking. And so like last year, for, for Altria, volumes were down a staggering 9.5%. The retail, average retail price went up 6.5%, but their net price realization was up over 11%. Again, it's that dynamic between pricing and then, then you're seeing fewer excise taxes, fewer cost of goods sold. So it's like, you know, you look at it in that way and you realize maybe volume declines. If you have this embedded pricing power, maybe the volume declines aren't a bug. Maybe it's more of a feature for this company. And you know, then there's a the question of, well, this can't continue forever, right? It's like, well, no, like nothing lasts forever. But again, as we touch on, you you know, you look at different smoking rates in different states, different levels of disposable income, different cultures, different different uh, societal trends different taxation dynamics, et cetera. Um, you can, can break out and, and look at this where volumes will probably decline at a rate higher than the, the total historical trend, but come down from the like the past two years. Um, along with that, Altria has you know, best-in-class infrastructure, analytics, uh, pricing capabilities, relationships with wholesalers, retailers to really uh, pinpoint and masterfully manage sales and, and pricing to maximize, you know, long-term value creation where, you know, I think there's, you know, 
many, many more years ahead for these dynamics to continue. And then, of course, when it reverses and they finally can't keep actually expanding margins and increasing operating income and those start to contract, you're working off of a much higher base, right? And people have it in their mind that like once that reverses, it's just kind of like right off a cliff. But like, no, you still have this, this decelerating period where, you know, you still have an outrageously high margin business where it will uh, decline probably more gracefully than people think. And then um, along with that is the fact like this business isn't just cigarettes. It's like, yeah, that's that's most of the business, like 80, 82% of revenue. But you have cigars, which are grouped into their smoke, smokable segment, right? Uh, they pur- purchased John Middleton in late 2007. Since 2007, volumes are up 40% on these cigars. They take price every single year. Um, since the acquisition, I think, you know, they, they don't break out the exact uh, operating income contribution of, of cigars. But by my math, I think cigar operating income has probably gone up at least 200% in that time frame. Uh, tremendous margins, pricing power, um, and, and kind of different user base and different reasons for using that product, right? Like cigars, whether they're large cigars or machine-made cigars, uh, a little bit more indulgent, used to celebrate, um, not necessarily a product, uh, you know, used exactly, you know, like cigarettes. So you see that as a, you know, a long-term secular trend. There's a chance that even though volumes came down a little bit in 2020, which I would attribute to the fact that Altria took kind of outrageous pricing last year compared to the historical trends, you know, but volumes could still grow for that. And that's going to be around for a long time. And then you have this huge segment uh, of the oral segment, right? Or again, uh, since they acquired UST in 2009, volumes are up uh, for the past like four years, been near, near stable in volumes. And you've seen the legacy products being cannibalized by Zin and On, but they have this product on that's growing rapidly, um, still growing rapidly despite discounting less. So it's going to flip to profitability, you know, aimed within the next two years. But you look at those things paired with the idea of kind of the the well-known cigarette pricing algorithm, you realize that like, yeah, this this company's probably going to be around longer. Than, than most people would assume. Um, and, and so you look, look at this company, you look at the numbers. It's like we have a company with a market cap of around 80 billion, 4 billion in cash, maybe 26 and a half billion in, in debt. Uh, their investments in ABI and Kronos, 13 billion. You get a enterprise value of 90. The company's producing over 12 billion in operating profit. Eight billion in free cash flow. I mean, it, it's you're, you're talking about a EV to EV, uh, EV to EBIT multiple that's just you know high single digit. About ten, the the equity is about t- ten times free cash flow right now. And um, if you model out a basic DCF, you know I, I've published a few of these. Um, assuming things just occur. In terms of the core business, as you know, 
as they have in the past, but to maybe like half the degree in terms of like uh, price and margin expansion, you can get a DCF that implies the, the equity is, is maybe worth around 70 a share where it's trading like mid forties right now. And of course, some people say like, you know, maybe a terminal, well, terminal value in a DCF, standard DCF is too high. And this thing ain't gonna be around forever, right? Eventually you're gonna see that accelerated decline. And you know, I, I went through the other day and I, I made a, a model that's much less elegant, but instead of you know taking a terminal value after a 10-year period, it just calculates out the next 25 years where 2023 is kind of stagnant on net revenues, you know, revenues net of excise taxes. Take a little bit of price, the margin expands, but then that starts to shrink each year. And every single year, revenues decline faster and faster and faster to like year 20, it starts to be like uh, 10%, 12.5, 15, 7.5. And like, you know, last year, they, they just, uh, you know, falls 25% or something. Like you can model something like that. And then nothing after 25 years and get to around like $45, $46 in, in you know, present value of those cash flows to equity. So right around fair value right now. So it's like, you know, I, I wonder, can it do better than that? Is there gonna be something left after that? Are, is this dynamic gonna persist longer than that? Is it gonna, you know, uh, do any better than that? And I, I'm inclined to believe yes, for, you know, a whole list of reasons it's laid out. And so, you know, I, I, I think it's just simply uh, very, very boring cash flows that are mispriced by the market. Oh, that's a great and, overview. Um, and you'll get, oh. and you'll get the, your your current stock price in dividends probably over the next ten to begin with. That's right. They pay out a lot in uh, in dividends, which people can go, yeah, look at that historical um, those payouts yourself. I want to hit some Twitter questions. Because we got a few interesting ones, some of them as uh, as they tend to be a little bit trolly, but one important one. I think this might come down to why the stock is so underpriced, from maybe your view. And it's it was a bit of a leading question from our friend Lawrence, but is why are the two most hated tobacco companies, which is Imperial Brands, I believe, and an Alter Group, outperforming the two most loved ones, which I believe were Philip Morris and British American Tobacco over the last few years. Do you think? I think my thesis there is that it's all psychological, and that the narrative of that everyone hates it can be so helpful, especially when they're paying out such a large portion of their free cash flow out to shareholders. Yeah, I mean, so it's it's interesting. A, a lot of this is just strictly driven by sentiment. And, you know, I've touched on it. Lawrence Hamtel has done a great job touching on it, where uh, if you look at the fundamentals of these businesses in terms of uh, their their ability to, to grow operating income, convert that to free cash flow, return that cash to shareholders, absolutely tremendous. And yet multiples broadly have, have been compressed. And you know, if if you look at something like Altria, there's some very good reasons why it you know might fare better than than the others in that like it operates solely in the U.S. and U.S. basically represents 50% of the the total uh, 
profit pool, right, for, for nicotine around the world, excluding China. Just it, it's such a lucrative market here um, and ultra exclusively operates here. Um, it makes sense. Along with that, you have the strong U.S. dollar, which, you know, historically has really hurt companies like PMI, right? Um, and the trade-off is, is that you have this regulatory concentration, right? You're in one you're in one country, like the FDA goes and makes some big moves that hurt you. Uh, you're particularly sensitive to that if you're not operating in a bunch of other countries. Um, at the same time, you know, as I've laid out in some of my writing, historically, seems to be that the FDA does a very good job of helping out Altria and insulating it, its, you know, legacy volumes. And so um, the, these companies, you know, they're they're much more reliant currently. Uh, that is I Imperial and Ultra on legacy volumes uh, compared to where uh, BAT and PMI are in terms of the, the growth and development of their next-gen products. But at the end of the day right now, the legacy products are, are really what are keeping the lights on. It's what's paying the bills. It's hyper-lucrative. And while there's still these looming uncertainties around a lot of the dynamics for RRPs, where don't get me wrong, there's tremendous amount of opportunity for, for the large players to, to turn these into uh, hu huge you know, growth categories that are profitable. Um, the legacy products are much more established, you know, brand loyalty, pricing, regulation, just much more rigid. And so you look at especially something like Imperial, where they're being very measured in how they're rolling out, where they're rolling out new products. And they're really putting most of their efforts into managing the, their cigarette business. And they're not you know, aggressively investing into new products, which is, again is keeping profitability you know, higher. And then you know, they've come out and said, you know, our equity is dirt cheap and we're gonna start buying it back. And if you, you, know, you look at the rate that they started buying back shares at the end of last year and how, how much they'll be able to buy back in the future, um, you know, maybe they can just generate an uh, outsized return compared to the rest of the basket just on the back of legacy cash flows paired with you know, massive buyback, just really juicing that, that, that equity return, right? So um, I... At least for me, um, you know, I, I I like the basket broadly. I, I focus on on holding, you know, non-investment advice, obviously, but I I hold Altria, PMI, and BAT sim simply because, you know, when I look at the big picture, I am not wanting to pick an individual winner. Um, I'm much more interested in just betting on nicotine's future regarding. The, you know, uh, the human experience. And I think, you know, you look at like legacy cash flows, very impressive. You look at the opportunities for next-gen products, very impressive. Um, but I don't want to pick one winner. I think the entire basket is maybe like, maybe just mispriced. And so I think in the aggregate, you know, holding a basket approach, like, uh, might lead to to you know an um, appropriate return for you know my my needs, and I think it makes sense just to take a basket approach, simply because I don't have a crystal ball. Okay, let's wrap things up. 
We're going to do a pre-mortem on Ultria, but since you did talk about the basket approach, I want to do a pre-mortem on just nicotine stocks in general and maybe just the big ones. Um, what are the risks that make nicotine stocks not work, say, this decade or over the next 10 years as a shareholder? Because from my point of view, I look at maybe exclude BTI or BAT. And I see, I, I think it's very difficult to lose money if you own both Altria and PMI in varying different scenarios over the next decade. But I'm curious from someone who studied these businesses closer than we have, what are the, why do you think they would greatly underperform or investors would lose money owning them? Great question. Um, so I, I think one of the largest fears are, again, the, as exciting as the next-gen products might be, there isn't this long-term track record, right? And let's say all of these companies can continue to pour more and more money into R&D and development infrastructure for these new products. And all these new products cannibalize their legacy volumes that are extremely profitable, but there isn't that brand loyalty and they're continually having to, to discount against one another. Um, all of a sudden you go from an environment where there's a small number of players engaging in kind of rational pricing together to a race to the bottom, right? Between that and then also, you know, I, while I think it's exceedingly unlikely, you could have regulators in, in different countries suddenly become more lax on who can manufacture some of these new products. All of a sudden, again, you have all kinds of new competitors that are, again, trying to aggressively take market share. You know, more competition is not good for your ability to take price normally. So I think that's a very real fear, um, especially uh, if you really think that this would rapidly cannibalize the legacy volumes. Like, so you're lo losing this huge would-be you know, stream of cash flows on one side, and you're throwing it all into something that's maybe going to incinerate money. Now, you know, I don't happen to think that that's terribly likely. I, I, I think the most rational outcome is, you know, you have governments that recognize the science substantiating the reduced risk qualities of these new products. They set a very high bar for manufacturers to produce to prove that their products do what they say they do. They incentivize adoption by taxing them at lower rates. Um, and, and maybe even down the line, if you think about it, you know, if prices, if price influences usage, you know, we can look at the nominal price, but then we can look at the cost to one's health on these products. If these new products have substantially reduced risk qualities, um, you know, if use, usage might go up, social acceptance might go up, you know, maybe long-term you, you get some type of a growth story um, along with that. Even if they don't retain their qualities that allow them to be more profitable um, in theory due to taxation dynamics, even if that goes away, you have something that's long-term in secular growth and volume, still able to, you know, engage in some level of rational pricing, um, you know, I think you get a pretty impressive outcome there. Um, the other thing that I, I think maybe worries me that, well, I won't say worries because, I, again, I, 
think it's so unlikely, but you never know what government's capable of. And I think time and time again, in each of their own special ways, governments around the world kind of amaze us in their brilliance and some of their decisions, right? And um, really, when you look at some of the dynamics around these products, um, you're you're kind of limited in, in what you can do. And a lot of the the regulatory uh, levers have been pulled in terms of like restricting where you can use the products, how you tax the products, um, who can manufacture, so on and so forth. And they've kind of run out of ways to try to curb usage. And one obvious thing is like, well, we can just jack up the excise taxes on all these, right, to try to curb usage even more. But if you do that too fast, you just push people into a black market. And the last thing you want is a growing black market that you don't have eyes on, that you have to devote tons of resources to dealing with, creates all kinds of you know, second order and third order problems. And on top of that, while you're deploying all these resources to tackle this black market, you're no longer getting the excise taxes, right? You raised them, but it's all going to illicit markets. So you're not actually recognizing you know, the proceeds. Um, nonetheless, like it wouldn't surprise me to see some governments really mess up create some kind of, you know, uh, black market scenario that grows, proliferates. And obviously, um, if the U.S. doesn't engage in enforcement against things like illicit vapes, that's going to be, you know, uh, a growing and more pronounced headwind against the, the major companies that will undoubtedly affect their profits to varying degrees. Okay, I think that's all the questions we have. Brett is giving me the thumbs up here. So that is going to do it. Um, anyone that wants to follow you, keep up with your work, why don't you, uh, I guess, name some resources, some places to do that? Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm on Twitter, uh, D-E-V-I-N-L-A-S-A-R-R-E. Uh, pretty straightforward. I also write uh, invariant.substack.com. So, uh, yeah. Reach out. I'm happy, uh, you know, to, to talk about these companies. I'd love any pushback, any criticism. Uh, yeah, I find it fascinating, and uh, I like to connect with other people interested in this stuff. So, thank you, guys. Yep, of course. We should throw a disclosure on this. Uh, we want to remind listeners that Brett and I are not financial advisors. Anything we say or discuss here on Chit Chat Money is not formal advice or recommendation. We are, however, general partners at Arch Capital, so clients may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Thanks again, everyone, for tuning in. Thank you, Devin, for joining us again, and we will see you all next time. Okay, I am welcomed by the founder of our exclusive sponsor, Stratosphere.io, uh, Braden Dennis. Braden, welcome. I wanted to basically give listeners that are interested in Stratosphere more context around what the platform is. So let's start there. What is Stratosphere? And then why did you decide to start it? Yeah. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And I'm glad to be sponsoring the podcast as, as a listener myself. I like the deep dives. I like the different guests, the different perspectives on uh, some interesting companies. So I think it's a good concept for a podcast, which is kind of what led me down to making Stratosphere in the first place, which was I was making content online and frustrated with the tools that were available to me. So I started building 
uh, a very scrappy version of the product just for free, just to figure out like, how can I overlay 10 years of financial side by side up to 35 years we have now? And how can I actually build out a proper database of, of company KPIs that are not just revenue, but like, if you're looking at like Costco, like how many warehouses do they have? How many paid members are, are in like our Costco members? Or, you know, if I want to do a comp against like the streaming, like how many Netflix subs versus uh, HBO plus discovery plus no Disney plus, like how do I build out proper comps of those? Cause those are the metrics that actually move the business. Those are the ones that actually move the needle more than any like gap financial metric you'll find. And so it started off as just purely a passion project. And, and I figured let's just make the leap into entrepreneurship and uh, see where it goes. And, you know, it brought, brought us here today. Yeah, and like you mentioned, it, it is the stuff that you can't find anywhere else, at least not in a, I mean, you could find it page by page on their financials. Exactly. But you can go through 35 uh, PDF filings and find it. Be, be my guest. And, and, that, and that's basically what we did for a long time. So what do, I guess, maybe describe the pricing model so people know, sure. but uh, you're going to say it, it, there's there's a free platform. What do free users get? Yeah, good good thing. Cause our, our mission was to always build a free platform. And and so we really kept true to our mission and give like an amazing platform for free, which gives you 10 years of financial statements on 40,000 global securities. So we don't list you just to US securities, it's on global stocks. We give you a watch list, the screener, comparisons on competitors, fundamental charting up to 10 years filings, transcripts. You can look at the press releases right inside the app, news, ETFs, funds, super investors, hedge fund letters, investor holdings, and financial calendars. Those are all the features you'll get on uh, on the free tier. Now, if on, on the, the middle tier, the personal tier, you're going to unlock up to 35 years of financials and just kind of like nice to have, like quality of life, like notifications being built in. Um, price targets for building models, uh, like business owner mode where you can hide prices, like kind of like just that next level for, for individual investors who want to level up. And then the the top tier is for like investment teams and professionals who want to unlock that KPI data and request KPI coverage as well. Like a firm will be like, here, we want these 10 names in our coverage and in your coverage. And then you'll have basically our, our entire universe that we're looking at, which is great, right? Because like earnings season comes around and we have it updated within 15 minutes when Netflix comes out with their net subscriber ads, like it's right there in one place, uh, especially easy to handle around the, the peak of earnings season that, that matters a lot for these people. And so we have a, a premium tier for that as well. That's the, that's the three plans that are available today. And now a perfect time to shameless plug our code. If you use CCM, you get 15% off any of the paid plans, but I think that covers it pretty well. Uh, if you're interested, please go ahead and check out stratosphere.io. We'll, we'll have a link in the uh, description as well, but uh, thank you, Brayden, for joining us. Ryan, keep it up. I really like what you and Brad are doing and uh, I'll be listening along.